And as we say every week, you know, the Bible is one of the most important things in our lives. Um, it's easy to come to passages like this and then be familiar and kind of gloss over them, but it doesn't take away from the fact that it's God's word um, and that it's important um, and that we should listen to it. Um, so as we come to read, let's quiet our hearts um, and hear what God has to say to us this morning. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbour? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbour to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, thank you that we can be here this morning that we can gather together and we can worship you and praise you for all that you have done for us. Father, I just pray that these words will sink into our hearts, that we will be reminded of the challenge that it is um, to know who our neighbor is and to love them and care for them. Father, I just pray for Andrew as he comes to preach, that you will give him the words to speak um, and that you'll speak through him. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Hannah. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. Um, if you haven't met me before, I think most of you have. My name is Andrew. Um, I lead the team here in Village South. If you're new or visiting with us, we've been working our way through uh, the Gospel of Luke, one of the accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. Um, and today we come to probably, probably one of, if not the most famous passages of the Bible, right? Even if you've never been to church in your life, um, you've probably heard of the Good Samaritan. And as I was studying this passage this week, it made me think of something that I do all the time. A mistake that I make in my marriage over and over and over again. And here's what this mistake is. Anytime that I hurt or upset my wife, I tend to ask her the question, how do I make this better? <laughs> now, if you're married... Or if you're not married, you probably know that's not a good idea, right? And it's not a good idea because of anything to do with Haley. It's a good idea because it's actually a really selfish attitude. 
I just want to figure out the best way, how quickly can I make this situation go away? What can I do? What can I do to make everything okay? If only I could do this or that, I could, I could just make this better. And as funny as it is to think about me being uh, terrible at being married, um, there's actually a really serious point here. Because this is what we do in our relationship with God, isn't it? This is how we think about God. We all try to earn God's forgiveness. We think that if we can just do the right things, then God, then, then, then God will like us more, right? Or we think that uh, if we can just uh, do this, that, and the other, then somehow we'll be better. And we try and feel and try and feel, and we under, either end up being puffed up with pride or just being racked with guilt. And it's this attitude of the human heart that Jesus is talking about, the conversation that he is having in this passage this morning. See, like I said, this is, this is uh, one of the most famous passages in, in the Bible. You've probably all heard of the Good Samaritan, or at least the idea of the Good Samaritan. But, but what usually happens is that the parable, the story, is, is ripped out of its context, isn't it? So we usually just hear the version of the bear story on its own, like Jesus tells in verses 30 to 35. But we forget that the story is actually part of a much bigger conversation. A conversation between the Lord Jesus himself and this teacher of the law. And if we take the story out of its context, we lose what it's really about. And it just becomes another story about how to be a good person or how to be a good wee Christian. Or even worse, we take it as a lesson on how to be good so that we can win Jesus' approval. Or we think it's a magic formula to live by. But this isn't what Luke, as he wrote this, intended. And it's not what Jesus intended as he was speaking it. If we look at what's happening, we see that this teacher of the law, this, this Jewish lawyer, he asks, how can I inherit eternal life? And that's what sparks this whole conversation. So this parable isn't just about what it means to be a good neighbor. This is a conversation about eternal life. This whole passage is a conversation about eternal life. So we see this in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now Luke tells us that, that the lawyer is trying to trap Jesus. But his question is an inter interesting one, isn't it? Because he says, what should I do to inherit eternal life? That's a silly question, because you don't do anything to inherit something, do you? Like, you can't choose your parents. You can't, I mean, if I, if I could, I'd have chose, like, billionaire parents. That's not true. I mean, maybe it might be true. But you don't do anything to inherit anything. Inheritance has nothing to do with what you do. It's all about what family you belong to. So Jesus is showing this man that, that he's thinking about it the wrong way around. The, the question about eternal life isn't about doing. It's about belonging. And Jesus is saying that, that if you love God, if you are truly in his family, then loving others in the way he describes in this passage will, will be the proof of that. We don't love our neighbors and, and that gets us the inheritance of eternal life. We become heirs of eternal life through our union with Christ and, and belonging to his family. And out of that flows love for God and love for others. So, so this passage is not about telling us how to be a good person. It's a conversation about eternal life. But it's also a challenge to our legalism. It's a challenge to our legalism. We see this as the conversation begins to unfold in verses 26 to 28. Jesus, when the guy says, um, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus does what he often does, and he re replies with a question. That's what good teachers do. Jesus says to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? 
And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now the lawyer isn't, isn't a lawyer like we understand it. He's not like a solicitor, you know. Um, he, he's an expert in the Old Testament law. He's an expert in the scriptures. If he were around today, he'd be a theologian or a scholar. But, but in those days, because the, the law of God was supposed to be upheld in the whole Jewish society, he also had this civil responsibility. So, so he's kind of like a, a lawyer theologian, which is a weird concept for us. Not just a legal expert, but a religious leader. And so Jesus responds to him and says, well, what is your understanding of the law? You're the Bible expert here. What do you think? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And what he has done, because he's an expert in the Old Testament, he's taken, uh, 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 he's taken a command from Deuteronomy 6 to love the Lord your God, and another command from Leviticus chapter uh, 18 and 19, and he's put them together, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And you've probably heard that as well. And this is a good answer. Jesus was once asked, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus himself gave the exact same answer as this guy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. These two commands, Jesus says, are, are the summary of the entire law. So Jesus says, hey, you're absolutely right. If you can do this, you will live. If you really do love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, if you, if you really truly do love your neighbor as yourself, you will have eternal life. If you really and truly perfectly do these things, you don't need grace. You don't need forgiveness. If you really do these things perfectly, you don't need to belong to the right family. So Jesus says, go ahead. You're right. Go and do it. And you will live. And the problem is that when we come to a passage like this, a passage that we are kind of familiar with, a passage we kind of think, yes, something I can do, something I can contribute. Jesus is actually telling me what I can do to make it right, something I can take into this week and try to put into practice. Our legalism, that just means our desire to, to try to earn God's favor. It, it's so deep that we don't even realize we have it. We're just like the lawyer here, and we come to this passage and we say, tell me what I need to do to make this right. Or like me and my marriage, what do I need to do to make it better? <laughs> See, it's so built into our nature that we think that we can somehow earn forgiveness, that we can buy grace through our very best efforts. And this is what we call legalism. And we want to get to the part of the, the passage where we, we figure out how to make everything between us and God okay. God, just tell me what I need to do to make this go away. How can I make it right? How can I make our relationship okay? But Jesus, in this conversation, challenges legalism by pointing out the absurdity of thinking that we are able to love God fully and love our neighbors perfectly. He's saying, go and try it and see how you get on. And that's not to say there aren't instructions here. There are. Right at the end, Jesus says, go and do likewise. But in the context of this conversation, in the context of the question this man has asked about eternal life, Jesus is preaching against legalism. This whole passage is, is about how eternal life is not something we can earn. It's about the woeful inadequacy of legalism. You see, when we have this attitude, when we think that we can earn God's favor, when we think we can make ourselves better, 
there's only two outcomes, right? Legalism can only produce two outcomes. Either we become crippled by failure or we become cursed with pride. That's the only two possible outcomes. So some people will hear uh, the command to love God and love your neighbor and they'll think, well, I could probably do it. I, I mean, that's like me. I could probably give it a shot. Like, I could, I could be all right. I mean, I love God. I come to church. I'm, I'm part of a missional community. I read my Bible. I give money to the poor. Like, I, I know the latest theological debates. And yeah, I'm pretty good at loving my neighbor. I'm pretty generous with the money. I help, help the old lady across the street take her bins out. I, I even volunteer. Did you know I even volunteer at the food bank a couple of times a year? I mean, come on. I'm loving my neighbor. And this kind of person is cursed with pride. And being cursed with pride means that you miss out on grace. On the other hand, there are some people who hear these commands and, and they're just frozen, frozen stiff with, with, with fear and anxiety. Like a rabbit in the headlights. Because the weight of it seems impossible, doesn't it? Love God, yeah, I mean, I try to love God, but to love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, that's impossible, I, I can't do that. And yeah, I, I try to be a good person and love my neighbors, but how on earth can I love my neighbor as I love myself? And so this kind of person ends up just doing nothing. Same route, but two very different outcomes. And this kind of person becomes crippled by failure, and just like the prideful person, they end up missing out on grace. And we will all at various times fall into these two categories. This is what happens when our question is, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And the point is, you can't do anything, right? We are all in need of grace. If the standard for eternal life is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, then none of us qualify. Can any of us say that we love God in this way? Like, I don't, I don't honestly think I can say I've loved God this way for even one second of my life. And what about loving your neighbor as yourself? Can honestly anyone say that we do this? Maybe we're fairly generous with our time and our, our money, but, but not all the time, not 24-7. And we certainly haven't been throughout our whole lives. I hate to break it to you, but you were a selfish child. <laughs> I have two kids under 10, and uh, I know that kids are selfish. There was at one point where Abigail, our daughter, where uh, she had only two words, and they were no and mine. <laughs> Those were only two words. I mean, still, sometimes it feels like that. And when we think about the amount of time throughout our whole lives that we spend thinking about ourselves, you have thought about yourself more than anyone else this morning, right? And you've only been up for, you know, whatever, three, four hours. Some of you like 20 minutes, but uh, that's not a jibe at anyone. Fair play, it's Sunday. But when we think about the time we spend thinking about ourselves, it's impossible to say that we come anywhere close to loving our neighbor as ourselves. We just can't do it. And if this is the standard for receiving eternal life, then we all seriously miss the mark, don't we? We need something outside of ourselves. We need help. In other words, we need grace. And as Jesus tells the lawyer to go and do what he has just said, the lawyer doesn't see his need for grace. He falls into that first category. He's thinking, hmm, I'm in with a shot here. And his follow-up question that Jesus proves this, and his follow-up question reveals the sin of self-justification. The sin of self-justification. Look at verse 29. The lawyer says, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You see, he thinks he's pretty good at loving 
at loving God, right? After all, he is a student and an expert of the, the law. He wears the right clothes. He, he goes to the temple. He does all these things. But he has a question about loving his neighbor because he wants to tick all the boxes, right? And so his desire to love others the way God loves him, his desire isn't to love God the way, love others the way God loves him. His desire is to do just enough to get him off the hook. I'll do just enough to get me off the hook. If I can just get the formula just right, if I can just figure out who I have to love and and who I don't have to love, then I'll be justified. And we all want to justify ourselves, don't we? We all do this. We have to examine ourselves and see that we all do this. Uh, One Bible scholar, Don Carson, says, it's difficult to think of any sin we commit that does not include a dollop of self-justification. We all say to Jesus, desiring to justify ourselves, tell me what I need to do. We make excuses for our failures. We want to be seen as good and nice people. Where we hate it when we're misrepresented. We, we want to blame other people when we mess up. But, but self-justification is actually just showing us our sinful nature. And it goes all the way back to the introduction of sin into the world. The fall. That's what we call that. Adam when he is confronted by God, when he's disobeyed God, what does he do? He blames Eve. He says, oh, I mean, it wasn't me. It was this woman that you gave to me. And Eve's not much better. She says, God, it wasn't my fault. It was was the serpent that tempted me. And when we sin, we say, well, you you know, I was just having a bad day. Like, you know, I was a bit hungry or tired, and that's not really me. I've got a lot on my plate at the minute, you know? Listen, self-justification is the belief that we are capable of good in and of ourselves. And ultimately, in those moments, we need to be truthful with ourselves and realize that in those moments, we believe that we don't need God. That somehow I am good enough. Self-justification is self-worship. If I can just figure out who I have to love and and how to love them in the right way, then, then I'll be okay. Truth is, no matter how hard we try, we cannot justify ourselves. It's only God who can justify us. Why? Because he's the one we have sinned against. He's the judge of all creation. And so it's only us, it's only he who can make us right. And all our efforts make not even the slightest bit of difference. I remember a few years ago, whenever our dog was about a year old, he was very enthusiastic back then. And we were walking on the towpath down the river and, and he killed a wee baby duck, wee duckling. I don't think he meant to, I think he just grabbed it and then he brought it, and he just put it at my feet, and then he stood wagging his tail looking at me like he had done something amazing. And I'm like, what have you done? <laughs> like, I appreciate the effort, but you just killed a wee duck. Well, this is what it's like when we try to justify ourselves. This is what it's like when we bring our best efforts to God. He's like, what, you've just killed a duck. What is that? See, we, we don't come to God and offer him our, our good deeds and our best efforts and say, look, hey God, I was, I was kind of good at loving my neighbor here. And, and he goes, oh yeah, well, you've done a pretty good job there. I mean, not perfect, but okay. So yeah, you're justified. That's not how it is at all. Our, our good deeds before God are like my dog bringing me a dead bird. But God is gracious and merciful and God looks on us in our sin and brokenness and he sees all of our filth And he declares that on the basis of his son's righteousness, that we are justified. That's the only basis for our justification. 
We can't get out of it by saying, who do I have to love and how do I have to love them and tell me how to love God perfectly and if I can just do the right things and do this, that and the other, then I'll be justified. We have no merit that we can claim. But trusting that your promises are true, we lean on Jesus' name. We place our hope in his name. Church, I I want us to be aware of the sin of self-justification and to put our hope only in Jesus, right? This is the only way to be justified. It's the only way to inherit eternal life. Not by doing. You can't do anything to inherit anything. By trusting, not in our own justification, not in our own good works, not in our own ability to love people, to love our neighbors, to love God. It's to trust in Jesus. See, the lawyer didn't grasp this. He thought that he could just justify himself. And Jesus, again, responds to to his question, who is my neighbor, with another question. And he sets this question up with what we now call the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it's in this parable that we get the standard of neighbor love. The standard of neighbor love. What it looks like to actually love your neighbor. And he's like, okay, tell tell me how I can have eternal life. What do you think? Do all that. Yeah, you're right. Do that. And then Jesus says, he says, well, what is, who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, let me tell you what loving your neighbor as yourself really looks like. And he gives us the parable. Let me take a minute just to read it here. If you're following in your Bible, it's verse 30. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite. And when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Now this road from Jericho to Jerusalem, we don't know what it's like, but they would have known that people listening to Jesus, was 17 miles long. It, it descended over 3,000 feet. So it's, it's quite a long and it's a rocky road. It's full of twists and turns. There were caves all along the way. It was the ideal place for an ambush. Like if you're, uh, you know, if you're like a, a robber, this is a good place to rob people. And this man is traveling this road and he's jumped by the robbers. And Jesus says, it wasn't like a stick up, like hands up, give me your wallet kind of business. This is a proper beating. Like he's stripped, beaten, and left for dead. And, and those details are important. The fact that he is stripped is crucial. You see, in those days, your clothing identified you, right? It told others what part of the country you were from. It told them how rich you were. It told them your your position in society. Basically, you could tell from someone's clothing how important they were or not. And you would look at them and you would rank them. You'd say, okay, he's a pretty important person. So when this priest comes along and the guy is stripped naked... The priest can't tell how important he is. And you have to wonder, if that had been an important person, would the priest have stopped? And also, the priest is trying to look after himself. I mean, he's probably thinking, what if these robbers are still about? I can't let this happen to myself. He's full of self-preservation. And there's also his purity to consider. 
See, the priest is coming from Jerusalem where he would have been serving in the temple and he's going home to his home in the countryside for a week or two before he's back on duty in the temple. And if he were to defile himself with the, 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 with the, the sin and with the potentially even this guy might be dead, then he would be unclean and would be unable to serve in the temple. And so he decides to pass by. Doesn't even go close to him. Next comes a Levite. Not quite as important as the priest, but still a religious figure. And he has very similar reasons for, uh, as the priest, and so he passes by too. And now comes along a Samaritan. Now for us, the Samaritans, the good guys, you know, like the charity, the Samaritans, like it's just a common phrase, the good Samaritan. But not for the Jews of Jesus' time. You see, the Jews hated the Samaritans. I mean, just like in chapter 9, in verse 54, we saw that, that uh, James and John, two of the disciples, they wanted to call fire down from heaven and burn up a bunch of Samaritans without hesitation. And this hatred went back 400 years. You see, during the captivity, the Babylonian captivity, the Samaritans had intermingled with the invaders and, and they had married with them and, and, and had children and descendants. And so the Jews saw them as, as dirty and impure. In Jewish eyes, the Samaritans were mongrels. They had disgraced their entire race. They were mudbloods. They were half-breeds. One rabbi famously said, Let no man eat the bread of the Samaritans, for he who eats their bread is as he who eats pig's flesh. In other words, if you even eat with them, you're going to be unclean. The Jews also had a prayer that had a line in it that said this, shocking, Do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. They're asking God not to remember the Samaritans. They do not deserve salvation. They were the lowest of the low. They were the most hated. It's hard to think of comparison, but but I don't know if you guys have been watching, the, uh, or if you can remember, I mean, most of you can't, if you can remember back to the troubles, uh, but there's been a really good series on BBC, uh, I recommend it, called Once Once Upon a Time in Northern Ireland, right? And if you can remember the hatred between Hardcore Republicans and hardcore loyalists, you're kind of getting close. They don't deserve salvation. They're not even human. Pure hatred. And this is the one who stops. The one who stops. This is a Catholic man walking down the Shankill Road in the middle of the Troubles, seeing a Protestant man lying in the street and stopping to help him. That's what this is. And he uses oil and wine, oil to, or wine to clean the wounds and oil to soothe them. And he binds them up and he puts his, him on his own donkey, which means that he now has to walk on this dangerous road. Much safer if you're riding, but now he's walking, he's in danger. And he takes him to a place of safety and he covers the expenses for a couple of weeks. And, and then he goes even a step further and he says that he will come back and, and if there's any more costs, he will cover them as well. And that's really important. And we often miss this detail that because if the man had had to stay at the inn and he had no money, remember all his money's been stolen, he's been robbed. If he couldn't pay his debt, then the, the innkeeper legally could have sold him into slavery. So, so the Samaritan pays all the costs to save this man from slavery. And Jesus is saying, you want to know the kind of love you're called to? You want to know, you're asking me the question, who is the neighbor? But your legalism can't save you here. You can't justify yourself. This is the standard of love in your neighbor, and it's a high one. Listen, there is only one person who can perfectly love others in this way. Only one. The true good Samaritan. 
Look at verse 36. Jesus says to him, now he gets to his question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? You see, Jesus has turned it all on its head. The, the, the lawyer's question was, well, who is my neighbor? Uh, exactly who do I have to love? Uh, but Jesus doesn't even answer his question. He asks him a different question. Who proved to be this man's neighbor? The question of inherent eternal life isn't about how we can be a good neighbor. It's about the one who proved himself to be our neighbor. Do you see? It's tempting to read this story and assess it and be like, hmm, am I the priest or the Levite or maybe even the Samaritan sometimes? But it's tempting to do this. But the truth is that without Jesus, we're none of those three. We're the guy who's lying left for dead, bleeding in the ditch. Jesus comes along. And we hated him as much as the Jews hated the Samaritans. See? We were his enemy. But he journeyed to where we were and he sees us and he has compassion on us and, and, and he, he, he heals our wounds not with oil and wine but with his own blood. In fact, it's by his wounds that we are healed. He takes us on as his burden and carries us to the place of safety. At great cost to himself, he pays our bill in full so that we can be free from slavery. There's only one true good Samaritan and his name is Jesus. And if we think that we're the good Samaritan, we're missing the point of the story. We're just like the lawyer saying, what can I do to make this okay? What can I do to be a good person? Only one true good Samaritan and his name is Jesus. You see what Jesus has done for us? And if we don't grasp this, we're just going to keep trying and failing and trying and failing, endlessly stuck in that cycle of legalism and guilt and pride. We're going to be trapped there. That's how a lot of us feel all the time, isn't it? I want to be a good Christian. I want to live a good life. I either get full of pride that I'm doing okay, and then I feel, and then I'm just racked with guilt. But instead, Jesus says there's freedom from that. We can just receive the grace and mercy of God demonstrated by Jesus. We paid it all so we can be saved. We can leave our legalism behind. We can let go of our pride because it is only through Jesus, only through Jesus that we are made right with God. And so it's only when we receive the grace of Jesus and only when we understand that Jesus is our neighbor, only then can we come to the final verse where we find a call to action. We want to skip there because we want to, I just realized that this water has been here since last week, but I'm going to give it a go anyway, so. Um, yeah. It is a bit dusty, I'm not going to lie to you. It's only when we receive the grace of Jesus, then we can understand the call to action. Verse 37. Verse 36, he said, who has proved to be the neighbor? And the, the, the lawyer says, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus says to him, you go and do likewise, right? See the hatred in this man? He can't even stomach to say the word Samaritan. So he's like the one who showed him mercy. Reluctantly says it. And Jesus says, go you and do likewise, okay? Jesus issues us with a call to action. And it's only now that we put the story back in its context that we can see that this really is a conversation about eternal life and not just good living. And only now can we address the command of Jesus to go and do likewise. 
You see, on the other side of the coin from legalism, working to earn God's favor, there is another sin. Thank you. And that sin is called antinomianism. Right? You never have to remember that word again. But that's what it's called. And, and that's just a big word that means the belief that because we've received God's grace, that there's no obligation on us to live in a certain way. We don't have to do, oh, it's all grace. I'm free. I can do whatever I want. But this is not the case. Jesus says, go and do likewise. You see, if we really are in God's family, love for others will be the proof. If we really are heirs of eternal life, then we will actively and sacrificially love others. Why? Because in this family, in the family of God, that's what we do. And you see, in churches like ours, churches like ours that, that we, you know, we hold the Bible in really high regard, we can be the worst at loving our neighbor, can't we? But for Jesus, love for God and active love for others cannot be separated. Listen, it's totally possible for us to be the lawyer here and have all the right answers to the right Bible questions and still get it wrong. Bible knowledge doesn't feed the hungry. It doesn't care for the sick. It doesn't clothe the naked. But the kind of love that we possess when we are in Jesus is an act of love, love that goes towards those in need, love that isn't just words. Jesus has turned it all on its head. The question shouldn't be, who is my neighbor, so I know who I have to love and so I know who I can get away without loving. The question for those of us who love Jesus should be, how can I be a neighbor? Or rather, how do I be the kind of neighbor that Jesus has been to me? See, the lawyer, this is something I'm terrified of, by the way. The lawyer had the appearance of being a holy man, a man who loves God, right? Remember I talked about the clothes and how I identified you? He had the, he had the, the, the religious robes. He actually, uh, he, he wore a, a, what was called a prayer box on his forehead that contained uh, prayers in there. His, his very appearance was a statement that he was dedicated to loving God and fulfilling the law, yet he didn't love his neighbor. And I'm terrified that, that I can have the same appearance. Now, we don't, wear, we don't go around wearing prayer boxes on our head, but we claim to actually know Jesus, right? We claim that Christ is in us and that we are in him. We claim that even though we live in a dead world, we have been born again and made alive in Jesus. But I wonder, do our actions prove it? Jesus says, go and do likewise. You see what I've done for you? You were lying dead, bleeding in the ditch. I have bound up your wounds and I've healed you. I've paid your debt. You believe that, go and do likewise. There's three quick th things on this to finish. Firstly, if we love God, we will love the other. We'll love the other. The Samaritan was the last person who should have helped this Jew. The Samaritans, uh, the, the Samaritans and the Jews in those days were they were the, the definition. They're the original demons and usins. <laughs> like the, we we think we invented that here. We didn't. They were doing it long before that. But when we have the love of Jesus, division between groups of people are broken down. The cross of Jesus smashes social and racial and economic barriers. And so we will actively go to those who are different from us. Actively. Because we've been reconciled to God through Jesus, we will demonstrate reconciliation with other human beings through active love. 
We will love our nationalist neighbor. We will serve our unionist colleagues. We will intentionally cross social boundaries and racial boundaries to practically serve others when we see them in need. The ones that the world says we should have nothing to do with, those are the ones that we will go to. So when Jesus says, go and do likewise, we need to ask ourselves, what boundaries do we need to cross to be active in love? Even worse, you know, sometimes I think that even worse is that the, we fall in the trap of being this lawyer and it's, it's actually our religiosity, it's actually our trying to be a good Christian that keeps us away from people that we think, oh, we should have nothing to do with them. But in the life of Jesus, what do we see? He used to being drunk, hanging out with prostitutes. He was constantly, constantly with the wrong people. And the ones he challenged were the religious ones. So what does that tell us? What boundaries do we need to cross to actively love others and follow Jesus? Because that's what he's done for us. Secondly, if we love God, we will love those in need. I think it's pretty clear from this story that our neighbor is anyone who's in need. For the Samaritan, it didn't matter who the man was. He was a person in need and so he loved him. Go and do likewise. If we love God, if we possess eternal life, then we will actively go towards those in need. And, and, and you know, I, there's something, there's a lovely normality to this. Like it was just in the course of the Samaritan's journey. Like I don't know where, he, well he was probably going from Jerusalem to Jericho because he's on that road, but I don't know where he's going or what he's doing. Maybe he's at work. I don't know. Maybe he's on a business trip. But it's just in the course of his journey that he comes across the person in need and when he saw him, he springs into action. And listen, the world is big and the, the, the problems and needs are seemingly infinite and we can get overwhelmed and think, oh my goodness, how can I do anything about all of this? But there is a, a lovely normality about the way we're called to serve those in need. We just don't ignore the needs that God puts in front of us. You don't know who it is. Your next door neighbor, your colleague, your friend at work, the person you come across in the street. If we go through life, we will come across all kinds of people in need and in all kinds of need. And it's in these moments that because we love God that we are called to not pass by, but to stop and to love. We will not pass by anyone in need because we have the love of Jesus in us. So as we hear the command of Jesus to go and do likewise, we need to consider who have we been passing by? I'll tell you something right now. There are, uh, this is not just a figurative thing. I, I, I have literally this week passed by people in need. Are we seeing the needs of others? Or are we so concerned with our own holiness or even just the busyness of our own lives that we just walk by? So here's a wee challenge for us this week. If you're a Christian, as you step out of your front door every morning this coming week, just say a simple prayer. Just ask the Lord. Just say, Show me somebody in need. Show me somebody in need today. And see what happens. Because if this is our attitude, I guarantee that we will see people in need. People for us to move towards and love. Our neighbors. So if we love God, we will love the other. We will love those in need. And then finally, we will love sacrificially. It cost the Samaritan a lot to love his enemy here. To love this man. And I'm going to be honest with you, loving others 
and loving those in need will be costly. It's going to cost you money to provide food for the hungry. It's going to cost you time to actively serve those in need. It might even cost you social status because you'll be loving the wrong kind of person. And if we open, or if we love others in this way, we will open our homes to those in need. We will always have a seat at our table. We will pour our oil and our wine in their wounds and we will use our own money to pay their debts. The fact is that it's costly, but that's kind of the point, right? If it's not costing us anything, then we're probably not loving. The whole, the whole point of, of love is that it requires something of us. Otherwise, it's just empty words, isn't it? You know what I mean? Like if I say I love my wife, but I never show her, my life doesn't demonstrate that, then you could say I don't really love her. Church, let's not be people who just knew the Bible really well or say the right prayers. Or let's, let's be people because we love God and because of the grace we've received, because we, uh, the inheritance we have of eternal life, let's actively and sacrificially love others and love those in need. Be ready in every opportunity to display the kind of love that Jesus has loved us with. If God had just said empty words, if God had been like, I see these people in need, I love them, we would be lost. We'd still be lost. Jesus would never have died. But because of the great love with which he loved us, Jesus proved himself to be our neighbor. Jesus has crossed the boundary of the other, right? You don't get much more other than us and God. He is infinite holy God and we are finite sinful people and yet Jesus came to us. Jesus loved us when we were in need. The Bible says while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Jesus loved us sacrificially at great cost to himself. He gave it, he gave it all, right? He gave up heaven to come to us. He gave his life for us. He paid our debt so we could be saved. So because of that, and only because of that, let's go and do likewise. This is the call on our lives. Not to try and earn our salvation. That's futile. But because Jesus has proved himself to be our neighbor, we can be free from the guilt and the pride of legalism. Just freely go and do what Jesus has done for us to others. Love with the kind of love that he loves us. Come Holy Spirit, let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you that this is not just a bunch of instructions on how to live well. But your word is about what it means to belong to you. Father, forgive us for our legalism, for trying to earn your favor. Forgive us, Lord, for trying to justify ourselves through our good actions. Forgive us for feeling guilty because we just feel at it all the time, Lord. Thank you, Father, that you've given us, uh, through Jesus and his love for us, you've given us freedom from that. You've given us grace. Thank you, Lord, that when we were lying dead in the ditch, that, that Jesus proved himself to be our neighbor. Father, I pray that we would all walk in the freedom of that and just be free then and secure in that to love others. Help us, Lord. We need your help. By your Holy Spirit, help us this week to do that. And Father, for anyone who doesn't know you, anyone who, yeah, who hasn't yet put their trust in you, Lord, would they see the beauty of that, our need and your grace. Jesus, may we all be blown away by what you have done for us.
And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.